Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is a difficult one in our world today because of the grievousness of sexual immorality and the way in which it has festered as unaddressed in so many lives. As we look to Jesus' uncovering of the true sinfulness of sin by addressing lust, I want to inform the listener that I've got a couple of illustrations in this sermon that don't translate well if you weren't there in person. So listen carefully for an illustration that includes a carpenter's hacksaw, a bright red gasoline can, and a plate of donuts at the end. Thanks for listening. Well, imagine if you got a diagnosis from the doctor that there was a problem with your heart and the only option was a heart replacement. And whatever disease this might be, it manifests itself in a variety of ugly ways in your life. Perhaps it makes your hair fall out and so instead of letting anyone see your hair fall out, you you put a wig on. Uh, Perhaps it makes you shiver with Cold, well, you you put extra clothes on so you don't shiver. Perhaps it causes rashes and blemishes that are so obvious, and so you buy makeup and cover it up. But one thing you don't do is you don't ever go get the heart surgery. This is exactly a metaphor for the problem that we see going on specifically with the Pharisees, and like it or not, extended to the church even today. In Jesus' time, there were those who thought themselves to be religious experts to understand God's law perfectly, even to the degree where they could manufacture external righteousness. So that if you looked on the outside, they looked real nice and you didn't see anything ugly that was underneath while all the time, deep down, there was hidden sin. My, uh, my daughter found a box. It's a little white box. Looks to be about the size of a casserole dish. And see, she with the neighbor uh, friends uh, had some leftover chocolate. I'm not sure where they got the chocolate from. But they decided they were going to make some type of a mud brownie. So they put in the ingredients of chocolate and some dirt. I'm pretty sure there might have been some dog dew that might have made its way in there. And um, she said that it was for fertilizer, really. And I think maybe that she's got a good recipe. We'll see how chocolate does for that. But yeah, it looks like a little brownie tin there. You know, I, I wouldn't imagine that it wouldn't take much for us to buy at the store a carton of frosting and, and just put the frosting right over the top. You know, the kind of frosting that you just want to lick your finger, you know, that kind. So that as you looked at it, you would say, wow, look at the tray of brownies. Right on the surface, ooh, it's just magnifique, right? But as soon as you cut in with a knife, you would find that below the surface, it's, it's putrid and it's disgusting. And, but none of that is seen. This is the subject that we are looking into this morning. And as I mentioned, it's a little PG, but that's okay. So parents, um, I ask, pay close attention. And if your kids have questions, this would be a good opportunity to talk about a reality that they're going to face in life. Uh, The subject of our study for this morning is the subject of lust. And we're going to be in a passage and continue on the very next verse, Matthew chapter 5, reviewing as we did last Sunday, the key attributes as Jesus comes to those who think they got it externally all figured out. He says, you've heard that is said, but I say to you, showing us four primary observations that we looked at last week, just as a reminder, the first is that we have to pay attention to the Spirit 
of the law. It's not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. Secondly, it's a matter of your heart and your motives, not actions only. Thirdly, that God's desire in the true giving of the law was that you would have positive spiritual growth and not simply an avoidance of the do not murder, do not commit adultery. But the law rightly understood is not a a list of don'ts, but it moves you towards positive spiritual growth. And then lastly, that the design of the law is such that you and I would come to know God. Those were four that we looked at last Sunday. Just as a reminder, I might every time we dig through these passages, give us those so that we kind of get our bearings for what's happening in this text as Jesus speaks to the crowd. If I wanted to um, end early on the subject of lust, I might simply say, don't look at pornography. Don't go to bars that you know are scandalous. Be careful what you look at and watch and put in your head. Let's pray. Right? That, that, that could be it, right? Uh, amen. And we'll go on our way. But I think if we were to read this passage that Jesus gives for us, I find there's more. There, there is more going on in this text that hopefully, if we're keen to pay close attention, will be a benefit to help us understand the nature of sin, its deceptiveness, and the grave consequences of it. And then ultimately, if we, if we do this right, If I do my job well this morning, what we will discover is that the gravity of sin being seen in the law will in turn provide for us, for those who are redeemed, an understanding of worship. That's the goal this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27 through 30, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So a few observations to begin with. Just short verses, but they are powerful, aren't they? Uh, Let's begin with the, the first one has to do with the subject material. Jesus uses the example of adultery. And I believe he does so because he wants to highlight the integrity of your word. This needs to be seen as something that doesn't just occur on the outside, but it's actually a product of your heart. He could have have chosen other examples. Part of what's happening here is he kind of is walking through the Decalogue. He's walking through the Ten Commandments, right? Last week was the Fifth Commandment, or the Fourth Commandment, Sixth Commandment. (laughs) I'll get there. Thou shalt not murder, right? Right? This one is, now what's what's the next one in order? Well... Next one is, thou shalt not commit adultery. So it seems, though, he just may be walking one after the next after the next, though we will find as we move on that's not entirely the case. I believe that by bringing up the subject of adultery, he is cluing us into something that's just central to the Christian's understanding. And it's the, it's the subject of covenant. Question, church, ready? Does God keep his word? Yeah, he does. 
Do you know there's no other example used more frequently in the Old Testament as representative for the idolatry of Israel than adultery? That was the example that Jesus or that that the Holy Spirit and God writing through the prophets again and again recounts them as having committed adultery in that they have broken their vows. You know what? Adultery today is just it's not a big deal in our world today. It used to be on the law, right? That that used in American law, adultery was punishable as a crime. Not today, though. Today, people look at it and kind of either blush or they think, good for you, or some other weird version of acceptance in our world. I actually had to, I'm a little ashamed at this, but I had to look it up. I I believe I know what adultery means, but I I had to Google it. Here's what the definition I got says. It's voluntary sexual activity between a married person and a person who is not your spouse. I I was really glad to see that definition that it has contained in there, the word married, because one of the greatest things that we have lost in our world today is the understanding of marriage as a covenant, as something that's not determined by your passion, but as something that's determined by a pledge, by your word. Now, I have a lot more to say on this one. Uh, I'm actually going to save some of that till next Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be another fun one. So, um, And actually, our sixth observation for today is also going to reference this again. But let's go on to the second one. Observation number two, the universality of lust unveils that our problem is not sins, but sin. I got to explain that one a little bit. The universality of lust unveils that our problem is not sins, but sin. Here's what Jesus understood. As he spoke to the crowd, not one of them was innocent when it came to lust. When it came to adultery, (laughs) no problem. I ain't never done that. Are you kidding me? Look at my ring right here. Faithful as a... As a, I can't think of a metaphor. Apple, I don't know. Something faithful. But uh, I've, I've never committed adultery, but lust. Let's do an experiment here in church this morning. I want you to raise your hand if you have never lusted or been tempted by lust. Just raise your hand. Good and high. Raise it up. Good and high. It's universal. In fact, this goes a little bit beyond where I have notes for this morning. But as you look to the Ten Commandments, it's the tenth that gives perspective for the previous nine. If anybody, if I were to give a quiz this morning, anybody know what it is? Thou shalt not covet. covet. Now, if you go through six, seven, eight, and nine, all of those are objectively measurable. You can, I can tell if you murdered somebody, right? There's evidence for it, right? Adultery has evidence for it. Thieving has evidence for it. Lying has evidence for it. But what about coveting? Where does the sin of covetousness happen? It happens right here. Oh, and I can put a layer of frosting right over my life and nobody will ever know what's going on right here. And it's that 10th one that shades all the rest. And it's essentially, church, it's universal. God in his wisdom knows this. And so what this teaches us is that the problem is not with the act of sin, but it's with something far more insidious. It's sin as part of our nature. So this, this, by the way, this is the number one point that would have clued in the crowds to condemn all those who thought they were righteous. It's not a question of sins that you've committed. It's a question of your nature. Are you a sinner because you sin? Or do you sin because you are a sinner? And it's the second one that is true. 
Uh, there, there's a passage that Paul gives in Romans chapter 7. A little lengthy here. I'm going to read through it. I invite you to turn there to, to it. Uh, I got uh, a, pa- a part of it that's worth underlining. Uh, Paul says here, what shall we say then? He's speaking about the law. Is the law sinful? <laughs> Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, under, see it doesn't say sins. It talks about sin in the singular as a product of this brokenness of humanity from the fall. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Do you see how the Pharisees had messed this up? This is why Jesus has to correct it. You've heard that it said. That's all they do. They go around saying, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And I am just squeaky clean. The commandment that was meant to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, this is good conclusion, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, meaning the law, to bring about my death so that the commandment, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. There's two things I want to point out to you. Did you see the primary um, command that Paul chose? It's coveting. It's that one that's secret, below the frosting. It's the one that nobody, nobody really knows about if you don't want to tell them. That's the one that brings the understanding of the ugliness of sin. And that's what he says here at the end. He says, uh, very, last sentence, in order that sin may be recognized as sin. It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And so this is what I believe we need to learn from this, right? Lust is ubiquitous. It's it's very hard to go anywhere and not find somebody who has encountered either the sin or temptation of lust. And if you pay attention to the commandment, you'll find out, well, then my problem really isn't the action. My problem is my heart. All right, thirdly, The severity over lust teaches us the significance of our soul. So I want to draw you back here again to the text. Um, Verse 28, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That was part of uh, our second observation. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. That's, That's pretty severe, isn't it? Here's why. Look what he says next. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Uh, Jesus is trying to show them here that you actually have something more important than your privileges of touch and sight. Do you you actually know what's on the line? Your, Your soul is what's on the line. And people need to be woken up to this because we as a culture give a lot of attention to the temporary. 
These eyes and working the way that they're supposed to, that's a temporary blessing that you have for a while. These hands working nine to five, right? Getting the job done. That's a, it's a temporary blessing that you have. But your soul, what is it? It's not temporary. It's, it's eternal. Jesus uh, says something similar here in Mark 8. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I believe in our world today, there's much confusion over this. Many people spending hours and money and resources trying to work on that which is temporary while forgetting to work on that part which is eternal. Jesus is trying to clue us into that. It is better to lose part so that you will save that which is eternal. It is better for you to lose that which is temporary so that the part that lasts unto eternity will be saved. This is why I say that the severity over lust, what it teaches us is that it speaks to something that is far more important, and that is to wake us up to the importance of our souls. Fourthly, the consequence of lust shows the graveness of sin. The consequence. So Jesus here lists it out for two parts of our body. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because your soul is on the line. Your soul here possibly being thrown into hell. That's the consequence. So, (laughs) you're playing with a loaded gun. When, When it seems like no one's watching. I ain't hurting nobody. Uh, think with me of the danger of this. Because it's not like it's a slap on the wrist. It's like the potential to burn your house down. In fact, just a quick illustration on this. Because of sin in our lives, you, ha- you and I, we have uh, an error within us that leads us to be sinful. It leads us to be those type of people who actually indulge in sin. And so there is, because of sin, there's there's potential for the thing to burn down. And if, if sin in our lives goes unaddressed, if you're never paying attention to the sin that's in your life, thinking that you're fine the whole time, playing with a loaded gun, playing with fire, let me let me give you an example as to what lust is like. Now, parents, make sure you tell your kids that this is extremely dangerous. All right, I'm going to be very careful here. Right? This is what lust is like. You, you, you think you're not hurting anybody. You think that it's not going to... just going to... Yikes. This is just water. <laughs> but you get the point, right? You see the potential for what could happen? Just going to make sure. The consequence of lust shows the graveness of sin. Um, <clears throat> they should have understood this. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Proverbs. So go in, go in the Old Testament here. And I, I want you to see how the Jewish people should have understood that this is not just simply a matter of action, but it's actually a matter of the heart. Proverbs chapter 7. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. I'd love it if you could follow along. 
Um, if your Bible reads a little bit differently than the version I have, do your best to try to uh, decode the, the way that your uh, um, interpretation or, or translation renders it. It's a great passage. This is, by the way, Book of Proverbs was intended for fathers to read to their sons and daughters. So there's some homework for you. All right, Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and store my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife and her seductive words. And then he gives a story here. So here's the story in verse 6. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down near the, the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as day was fading, as the dark of night was setting in, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she looks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you. I've looked for you and I found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deep of love till morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. Pay attention to these next verses. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray onto her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leaning down to the chambers of, what's your Bible say? You get it? The consequence of lust, Jesus lays out as nothing short of hell. He doesn't mention anything about a, a broken marriage. He doesn't mention anything about public shame. The consequence... Playing with a loaded gun, playing with fire here is hell. It's grave. All right, number five. The remedy for lust informs our convictions on holiness. So Jesus, knowing he wants to spare us from hell, such that we won't be deceived in thinking that adultery is something you only do with actions and it's nothing in your heart, he actually gives a remedy. Um, This, by the way, folks, is one place where I disagree with Jesus. You got to be very careful if you ever say that, right? Um, and I guess what I mean is in a false understanding of what he says. I'm willing to bet you also disagree because if you don't, let's read together what he says here. If your right hand causes you to sin, verse 30, what's it say? Church is about to get real awkward, folks. 
So, what do we think? Everybody understand that Jesus maybe didn't mean this specifically. It's actually hyperbole. And Jesus is doing it for shock value that you would understand. It's better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body or your soul to be sent into hell. However, it does inform for us the nature of handling sin with respect to holiness. Do you know what holy means? Holy means to be set apart. And so if there's something in your life that is leading you and playing with fire for your body, if there's something in your life that potentially could throw you into hell, holiness means you do what? You cut it off and get it separate from your life. Remove it. Uh, we, we need to be very careful because, <laughs> I mean, they sell cheeseburgers today with sex. Have you, have you seen the commercials? Did you watch Super Bowl uh, halftime show last year? I, I, got, I got a picture up here of the Super Bowl halftime show. Y'all, y'all ready? I don't have a picture. I can't show that in church. You, 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 you know what? Our world is saturated with this. It's saturated with it. And the call here for the remedy is to set apart yourself from sin. Um, Passage in Romans 13 here. Paul says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. When, when do most um, uh, de- depraved uh, actions happen? Yeah, it's, it's not at noon. It's, it's at night. Not carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. This last verse right here, I like how it's in the King I memorized it in the King James. Maybe you've heard of it this way. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's the line right there. Make no provision. And so Jesus says, all right, we're going to have church this morning. Let's get out the saw, get out the, the melon baller, and let's get, let's get, to, let's get to work. Because what we need to do is we need to find that avoiding sin is really a matter of holiness to be set apart from those things that lead us astray. There was one author who uh, recounted the story in his book of a man who took Jesus literalistically here, and he actually cut off his hand and plucked out his eyes, only to realize a few moments later he could still lust. So it's not simply a matter here that we would look at for being our um, eyes or hands. But if you were to shed those because they lead you astray, you'll find that you'll save your soul. Uh, the writer C.S. Lewis recounts this in his, in his prologue here to his book, The Great Divorce. Uh, it's not about divorce. It's about heaven and hell. Highly recommend you pick this up. Listen to what he says. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey... Even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. If we insist on keeping hell, we shall not see heaven. And if we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest, most intimate souvenirs of hell. 
There's a, there's a lot which goes on in our world today that is representative of hell. It's hell on earth right now. I know you and I see it regularly. The call to the Christian is to be holy by separating yourself from those things. Be, J- Jesus says it with hyperbole, drastic measures. Drastic measures. I, I want to say, too, that half measures on this are only kicking the can down the road a little bit further. Um, a great example for this is the story of Joseph. I don't, I don't have the text here for you, but you know the story, right? Joseph here sold by his brothers into slavery to a man named Potiphar. And there, in service to Potiphar, he's overseeing the entire household. But Potiphar's wife is kind of a, I was going to say skank. I don't know if I can say that in church, but she's, she's kind of... Sorry about that one. I don't know if you can say that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what she is, though. She, she's a little bit uh, loose, right? If you know the story, she says to Joseph, because he's handsome, she says, come and lay with me. Like Joseph says, he essentially says no. The story recounts in the book of Genesis that this happens for a while until one day Joseph walks in and there's no other servants in the house. Everybody's gone. How peculiar is that, right? Can you imagine? You're used to day after day after day seeing everybody doing their duties, right? But he walks in and nobody is around. And then he sees this evil woman. Right? He, he sees her uh, over there in the bedroom doing one of these, right? He says, no, how could I do this evil thing and sin against God? And she grabs hold of his jacket. And what does Joseph finally do? What does he finally do at this point? You know the story? He runs what should have he done from the beginning? You should have run from day one, man. You, you were just kicking the can down the road further because you're playing with fire. Fire was there in that house the whole time. should have handled it from day one. But if you don't, you may get to a point where now it's your life at risk. And he flees for his life. All right, number six. The loophole around lust tells us that we need God's help. Did you know there's a loophole? It's not good that your pastor looks for loopholes, but found one. Look with me in the text. Here we go. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, ah, did anyone else catch it? Pluck out the right eye, but guess what he didn't say? The left eye still right there working, right? Look at the next verse, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. <laughs> what did he not say? A little, little bit of a loophole in here. Uh, here's why this is, this is there. The loophole exists because even if you were to do this, even if you were to take Jesus literalistically, misunderstanding what he's saying, lust is still a problem of the heart. It's not a problem of the hand or the eye. He wants to cause you to say, take extreme measures. Act on this. Don't kick the can down the road. Do something about it now. But you need to understand, even if you're drastic with it, you're still going to fail. That feels like bad news this morning, doesn't it? I, by the way, this is really important news. Uh, in fact, if I don't have this line here in the sermon, I will, all I will have done is lay judgment over the church. Not a single one hand went up when they said lust was not a reality somewhere in their lives at one point. So guess what that means? It indicts all of us towards sin and hell and judgment. And if all I say is, Work harder, you sinners. Come on, you can do better than this. Why you waste? If that's all I ever say, all I do is just spread judgment over the church. But I have to see Jesus understood, even with the loophole, and the reason for it is because you can't do it. You can't succeed in this alone. You need help. And so the loophole, it tells us that in order to have success 
with righteousness, with lust in our lives, you must have God's help to do so. Lastly, number seven, the ugliness of lust reveals to the redeemed the worship of God. So this is, I think, of all of the segments we're going to have in this chapter five, this one is, it's the ugliest, right? I mean, it has, uh, as an example, with hyperbole, physical mutilation, talks directly about hell. Jesus is incredibly severe when it comes to this. It's ubiquitous. It's universal. Everybody is struggling with this, even if you haven't committed adultery. By the way, this is not just a male problem. I've... I've spoken to many women where this is a problem as well. It's ugly. But you know what God does with ugly? He takes the worst of us. He takes those who can, can't, I'll never change, I'm the, nobody loves me. He takes the worst and he works miracles to redeem them. I, I want to show you this in one of the most beautiful stories and, and we're working towards the end here. So go with me to Luke chapter 7. In your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 7. And what I want us to see is how the ugliness, when you see sin as exceedingly sinful, what that will do is produce for you a picture of God that causes you to love him more. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Uh, Luke is going to start out here by giving us kind of the background, setting the stage Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Aha. So where are we at? We're at the Pharisee's house. And this dude is a Pharisee, right? So this guy is one who generally keeps the law thinking that, yeah, don't commit adultery. I've never committed adultery. That's essentially the mindset of this Pharisee. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, if you're a smart uh, Bible observer, you're going to see that within this story, there is a particular line of business that this sinful woman is in. The, the reason why these things were mentioned because the tricks of her trade here are being redeemed. The hair is that thing that the w- women would lay down as a kind of a colorful bait here for unsuspecting men, right? A little bit of perfume, was that which intoxicated the senses and drew people into sinfulness. And kissing, the act itself of adultery and lust, all three of those here are being changed. They're all being now used, not for self, but they're being used for worship. Let's continue. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had lived, or I'm sorry, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. "Uh, Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So 
he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, and verse 47 is the main one to watch here. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves, what's it say? Loves little. So, this is what we need to take away from Matthew chapter 5. The ubiquitous universality of lust. Guys, it's ugly. It, it's not even hard for me to preach this. You, you totally know it and see it. How much it destroys families, brings upon shame on individuals, inwardly crushes the souls of those who keep putting frosting over their lives. It's ugly. But if you bring that honest ugliness to the foot of the cross, recognizing it to be sin and not covering it up, what you will find is that you are able to love God in a way that those who remain stand off and hard hardest never experience in their lives. So the ugliness of lust reveals to the redeemed the worship of God. I want to just return to a key verse. This was the one out of the King James. Remember Romans 13, 14? But put on, uh, the NIV says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Here's what I want to leave you with for application. Number one, by the Spirit's help, take sin seriously. You need to take it seriously. The word for this is called mortification. It's kind of a Puritan word. It's a really important word. It means that you are to be killing sin in your life. Wherever you find it, you're to pull up the weeds and then come back next week. And what happens in the garden? You you pull the weeds one week and you come back and there's no more ever, right? No, there's more, right? And what do you do when you see more? Pull them up too. You, You don't trim them, right? You don't trim the weeds and make them look nice. You grab them by the root and you pull them up. This is, what, this is what mortification means. It shows up two places just real quickly. Romans 8 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again in Colossians, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, purity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, as I mentioned, uh, I think it was in our sixth point, you can't do this alone. You're to do it with the Spirit's help. But that's, that's the task. I, I want to give you a quick illustration of that. Lois, can you help me for a minute and just come over here? I'm going to have you uh, just hold the plate for me. So I want you to think of those things in your life that lead towards lust and sin. They're really not healthy for you, right? So uh, maybe a particular magazine that you read or maybe website that you would visit or maybe a, a, a novel that's scandalous or or uh, maybe participating with joking, course joking at work, or maybe watching Netflix. Let me just do that. No, you're good. Stand there. Mortification does what with these? 
When you, when you see them, what does mortification do? It tries to... It, you don't eat them. Is it, did you say eat them? That's good. That's all right. Hold this. Good. That's all right. We're going to get right. Where do those things belong? They don't belong in your life. I, I remember hearing a story of a, of a man who lived, uh, actually was a preacher in Dallas where I served for a few many years. And um, Highway 35, you guys drive down Highway 35, they have a series of billboards that are advertising a certain type of establishment. And what this man discovered is that as he would drive on 35 and see these billboards, little seeds would be planted in his heart. Little, little bitty moments would sit there in these morsels over the course of his day or his week and would lead into lust in his life. And so mortification is identifying them and cutting them off from your life. That's, that's the first part. In fact, that's what we read in the text, right? That you are to make no provision. Here's the problem, though. If you, if you do what I'm saying so far and you have no provision for the flesh, don't let me lose you on this, guys. If you have donuts in the house, what are you going to do with them? Yeah. So don't buy donuts, right? And by the way, this is not a sermon on donuts. That's just a metaphor for something that's not healthy, right? So if you go to the store and you have those, you're actually making provision for your flesh. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. That's what mortification means. But if you're just like this, eventually, I guarantee you what's going to happen? You're going to get more donuts eventually, if this is all there is. So we ought to have a second half. And the second half is by the Spirit's health, help, we need to take lust seriously, and we need to practice Purity. Would you give a round of applause for standing up? So we need to practice something. You can't just live your life with an empty plate. I promise you, a billboard will be enough to put a little something not healthy back on that plate for you. So here's here's what this means, and let me just repeat again to the verse. It's not just the second half. Make no provision. But what's the first command? Uh, I was going to, for sake of illustration, I was going to get all the vegetables out of our refrigerator and bring them and stack them on here. But I was like, I don't have enough room to do that. So I'm just going to tell you, here's what you do in your life. If this is a metaphor for your heart and your life, you need to fill it with a big cup of chili, a baked potato over on this side that's just super healthy for you. Some home cross-cut fries right here. Maybe a salad on this side with your favorite dressing. You need to get some uh, banana and apple slices to squeeze in over on here until Christ and that which is healthy occupies your plate. And when the plate is full because you've clothed it with Christ, when that donut shows up, did I have any more? This is what it'll look like. When the donut shows up, and if the plate is heaping full, you know what you won't be able to do? There's no spot for it. I, I guess I've made no provision for the flesh because I have clothed myself with Christ. We need to practice this. I'm going to leave you with two simple questions. What is there in your life that needs to be cut off? For sake of holiness, we just got to say, we got to get this influence out of our lives. Um, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a series on TV. I remember my wife and I, when we were in Dallas, would watch Friends. You probably heard me say this before, right? NBC's Friends. 
And like, it has a couple good laughs in there. It's kind of fun for young people to watch. Season six is just rubbish. And really there's rubbish throughout. But what we found is we've been feeding our minds off it for so long, our sensibilities started to get eroded. What is there in your life that needs to be cut off for the sake of holiness, for your daily living? And secondly, what can you add to your daily habits so that there's no room on the plate for that which is unhealthy? I want to conclude with a, uh, a quote. I was uh, studying this and I, w- I was uh, on YouTube and in the comment section referring to God, there was an atheist. The, the, the title of the user's name was Atheist125 or something like that. And the quote said this, I refuse to believe in a God who sits up on his throne and judges his creation to hell. And refuses to lift a finger to even help them. Do you know that that's, that's what, if, they, if you hear a message like this, some people think that. They think, oh, I, can't, I should have stayed home this morning, came to church and just feel judgment over me. And you know what? I refuse to believe in a God who just sits up there, just, uh, you go to hell, you go to hell, you go to hell without willing to lift a finger. Do you know something? I refuse to believe in a God like that too. You have a condition where you need a heart transplant. God knows it. And God didn't sit up in heaven twiddling his thumbs. He came. And he went through exactly what you go through to face the same temptations you face and lead to sin. Whereas for Jesus, they did not lead to sin. And then he died on a cross for the punishment that we deserve in our flesh. So that his heart could be transplanted into our lives. That's the God who has made provision, not for the flesh, but provision for life. Let's pray this morning.